guest today is a thrill-seeking adventurist who has been to more countries than you can name. He spent several years as a soldier in Iraq and Afghanistan and has spent his time and money traveling everywhere he could after he left. He backpacked for many months through South America, was kidnapped in Cancun, did ayahuasca 30 times with a shaman, and practiced Buddhism in Nepal for four years. We didn't get to everything, so he's coming back in a month or so to finish the story. Here is my friend, Shane Bassey. So I don't know if, I don't know if this kind of spurred the, uh, the, the thought, but I suddenly decided to go to, back to the Amazon to uh, visit my shaman and do ayahuasca again. Okay, so you weren't going to do that until just recently. Yes, until yesterday. Until yesterday. And I'm leaving tomorrow. What made you decide, here, put these on too. What made you decide to do that out of nowhere? So, you know, when I'm in Nepal, I don't do any drugs. (laughs) You want to throw those on? Just so you know. Oh. So when I come to Portland, that's like, should we do the show and talk about it or should I just? No, you're good. Just scoot over in front of the mic a little bit. There you go. Okay. So, so you, you don't you don't do drugs until you're in Portland, and then you do right, drugs. Right, right. <laughs> it's just a pattern I've had for maybe 20 years of my life now, because I, I never stay in Portland. So it's kind of like, okay, I can do these drugs, the addiction will set in, and then I'm gone, you know? And that works, you know? Sometimes I go to a rehab facility they have for veterans down in Roseburg, but they close that. So yesterday, last night I just thought... I should just go back to the Amazon and boom. Here we so you had a positive experience the first time you went and did ayahuasca. And so that's why you want to go back. Mm. It cleansed you? It, it did. Um, it's, uh, are we on? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Oh, we started. Yeah, we're good. Oh, we're shit. going, Okay. <laughs> did it, cl- right. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Did it cleanse me? Oh man, where do I start? That's the see. That's a little ahead. Well, that was story. that was the challenge I thought about and how to get it going. Because, dude, yeah. I don't know. There's so many things. So, well, it's a story about what led what led to the ayahuasca was my lifestyle before I I got to the ayahuasca, and I didn't even know, you know, when I did get to it, what it was, and it was just a surprise. I lived a. a I guess you could say a violent life uh, from the age of maybe 18 to 28. So there's like a 10-year period where I was always looking for an adventure and something that had risk. If it didn't have risk, it wasn't an, it wasn't an adventure and it wasn't that it wasn't interesting enough. So why did that start at 18 though? Um well Okay, well, so I was driving home from a bar being chased by a Mexican with a giant Rambo Bowie knife and ran into my house and pulled out a, a twenty two that I had, came outside and, <laughs> and and I I I stared this guy down in the in the front lawn and any to make a long story short, the uh neighbor from across the street uh came over and and uh he said oh you you know how to use that gun and offered me a job guarding his one of his properties turns out he was a first sergeant in the national guard here in portland 
And he said that he had this property that um, he had to kick people out of. He had to evict people, and they were threatening to to blow it up. And he, he wanted to hire somebody to stay there for a few nights. So my friend and I, uh, another crazy, my, my sidekick, who did all these adventures with me and is now dead. He overdosed on, on heroin, God rest his soul. And uh, we took the job and we went, went over to his house and uh, he wanted us to stay awake all night, you know, and because that's when he suspected that they were, they were going to come. These guys were tweakers and, you know, yada, yada. And so we stayed there. The first day went, the first night went by pretty peacefully. The second night went by previously. On the third night, uh, yeah, on the, th- on, on the third night, it was about four o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting sitting down in the backyard and my friend Volks is up in the up in the front yard and a truck pulls up and stops. The guy gets out with a duffel bag and he walks over to a trailer that was that belonged to this first sergeant that was next that was next to his house and they throw the duffel bag at the trailer and it blows up. Like it had a bomb inside it? I don't know what was inside of it. It was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life though to this day. You know, and I spent a lot of time in places with a lot of noises, you know, and I was really, I was pretty close to that actually. And so I was like, what the fuck? So I charged my 22 and I go running out through the gate and running out to the street and he's already a hundred meters away. And I just start, and I'm just shooting this on 13th, not too far from here, actually, just right down the road. And I'm unloading this whole clip into the back and, and I can hear sirens already coming off because the neighbors called because of the bomb, you know. Sirens are coming, and my, I felt this adrenaline, and I just felt like this. I mean, I knew it right there, that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so... Exciting, <laughs> insane yeah. shit. So the, so the first sergeant comes, and I'm explaining to him, you know, what, what had happened, giving him the rundown, you know. And, uh, and he's, he says, he says you, he said, you like this kind of stuff? I was, like, I was like, yeah. He goes, you should join the National Guard. So I joined the National Guard. And this is when you were 18 years old. I was actually, I was uh, 19. 19. Yeah. Okay, but I got to go back a little bit. Yeah. Like what happened What happened in your childhood and stuff? What Did something lead you to that? All of a sudden you're just like wanting to do exciting things. As a young man, I had always read the most amazing stories that I could find about... Uh, this is my answer <laughs> about Marco Polo or King Solomon or, you know, people that, you know, gain wisdom or, or through their adventures, through their experiences, you know, and I was always from the age of 12, I was always looking forward into my life as, as if they were a, a series, as if it was a series of chapters. And I was always trying to find the next cool chapter. And I never really cared about a career or a wife or a house or kids or any of that kind of stuff. And to, mm-hmm. this, to this day, I don't really have any of that except for the wife. But uh, it's always it's, – for me, it's always been about, you know, at the end of my life, what – how many cool chapters am I going to have in my, re- in my book? I, wanna, I can relate to that. I yeah. want to have a book. Yeah, I'm, I think a lot of people think, think this way, you know. But uh, – so, yeah, so – 
Um, so all, what happened with the when the first sergeant first saw you and the Mexican guy was coming to do something to you? What happened with all that? So I was at a uh, I was at a strip club. It's this real rank like hole in the wall kind of on Lombard, you know, with the What's si- it called? with the sixty year old strippers and Mex- What's... Mexican selling cocaine in the back. What's it called? Roosters. Okay, I haven't been there. I thought it was and something I, else. I drove by the other day, and they have a different name, so I don't know what the name is now. Okay. But you're hanging out there, and then what happened? This this uh, Mexican dude starts uh, saying some real nasty stuff to this stripper, who's like a grandma. And I was like, dude. I was like, I'm trying to enjoy my grandma stripping. No, I'm just kidding. I was actually playing pool, right? And this guy... He's like, I can hear him saying, spitting off this, like, show me your pussy and stuff. And, and I was like, okay. But he's, like, saying it, like, really, like, you know, kind of just, like, rude, harsh, kind of, like, you know. And he was really drunk. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey. I said, hey, don't talk to her like that, man. Go sit down over there. Go sit down. You know, and he was like, you talking to me? I swear this guy watches movies, uh, you know, because he's just, like. Everything he said was just stereotypical. Just playing it up. Yeah, he's just like, you talking to me, is he? And I was like, yeah, I'm talking to you. So immediately, we he comes running over. I was just like, holy shit, swing, you know? And we just start swinging, and we're wrestling, and my, my buddy comes over and, and uh, pulls him off of me, and we separate. We decide to leave. I go out to my car, and, uh, you know, before cops come. And this guy suddenly appears out of nowhere with a huge... Knife. It looks like a Nepali kukri. You know a kukri? It's huge. It's huge blade. It's, and I was just like, you know, that I got my attention. I, I looked over and I was like, whoa, shit! And I jumped in the car and took off. And he jumped in his car and followed. So we were just going through red lights and hopping over mediums and you know, excuse me. Yeah. So. But when you go back to your house yep. and so, you pulled the gun out, so what happened at that point? I drive in the driveway, hit my brakes, I, I jump out, pop the trunk, pull out 22, you know, and he hops out of the car and he's like, he's like, oh, are you going to shoot me? He like gets into execution. He's drunk. He gets into execution, like on his knees like this. And he's like, I knew it would come to this someday and stuff. So I was, I actually, when he first got out of the car, I shot like three shots into the ground uh-huh. to scare him. You know, and that was what caused him to drop down and, and do this thing. And, and it's just like within a flash, it just felt like there was just like an infinite number of cop cars, just the lights. I could hear dogs barking and they're like, put down the gun, you know? And I'm thinking about like what I've seen in movies. So I was like holding, so I like opened the charge, pulled the charging arm back, you know, and so that you can see that it's empty. And I just held it up like this. But to cops, they're just like, put that fucking thing down, you know? So uh, it was pretty close because, like, they could have shot me. I was walking towards them with it. I just assumed, you know, it's really strange. and I I don't want to give the other side material to use, but um, they they didn't hardly ask me any questions at all. And my my brother-in-law was there who's Mexican uh-huh. uh, at the house. Uh-huh. He wasn't with me throughout the ordeal. But uh, he came out, and uh, I looked over, and my brother-in-law was in cuffs next to the Mexican that chased me from the bar. Because <laughs> they thought he was with the guy? Yeah. Hmm. So they're like, all right, we got the Mexicans out. I was, I was like, no, no, that's my brother-in-law. He's cool. I was like, this guy here is, you know, he followed me home from the strip club. So, so 
you know, I was kind of, you know, always looking for this kind of, uh, always looking for a crazy story, mm -hmm. for, you know. So you joined the National Guard. Yeah, so the National Guard, I probably, probably would have been better off uh, joining the Marines if I was looking for that kind of an experience. But um, the National Guard, when I found out that it was only one week in a month, <laughs> that's my kind of, that's my, that's my kind of deal. I was like, one week in a month, really? So you go there for one week and two days of every month, and then they send you money, and you get college, and you get all these other things, and health care, and all this. I was like, all right, sign me up. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought the National Guard was something that people who had been in the military and did a tour came back, and then they joined it. I didn't know they just took regular people straight you, off the street. You can do it that way. Huh, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I went to a recruiter's office. I wasn't taken directly off the street. I, I, I uh, went to a recruiter's office, and then I went to this, through the same process that uh, described to you with mm -hmm. the reception. You know, you go through reception, and then you go to boot camp and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what year was this? 2003. Okay. And so did you go to Iraq? I did. I was there. With for the invasion, yeah. um, no, not during the invasion. Uh, our I was with the unit that came out of Idaho. Uh, the the Dow's unit was attached to them as well, uh, and they uh, they actually took over. I think we took I think we took over security operations in Kirkuk uh, for I think it was the hundred first, which is crazy because the National Guard before that made baskets. <laughs> And, you know, the, George Bush changed how the National Guard is used and we're no, we're no longer making baskets and stopping floods from, you know, coming into the city. Because of 2003 yeah. in Iraq, the, just because they needed more people? And that, I thought about that the other day because there was a million people in the Army at that time. So, um, but they were trying to keep 144,000, 150,000 people, uh, soldiers, army soldiers, anyways. No, that was the total for military personnel in Iraq. So I don't understand. I think they just wanted to make it easier on the, the regular army. So what was your job when you were over there? I wouldn't know. I don't know anything. They don't ask me about policy when they make it. So, But my job? Yeah. I got lucky. Um, I signed up. Uh, when, I, when I took the test... Uh, the recruiter was like, congratulations, you can be a mechanic. And I was like, I don't want to be a fucking mechanic. <laughs> and he was like, well, the test the test says that that's where you'll really excel. And I was like, really? I'll excel at that? And I was like, yeah, your math, your math score is pretty high. And I was like, no shit. I was like, all right. So, I mean, these guys, they know how to shoot shit up your ass. You know, they'll, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear, you know, so that they can get paid. So, did you get it? No, oh, it's a fruit. It's still flying around. Fruit fly. Yeah. So... Uh, I ended up uh, being a mechanic, but in Iraq, I ended up getting this really sweet job working for uh, the captain. Um, so I, I don't take orders very well, um, and I didn't I, wasn't, I didn't really know that that about myself until I was in boot camp, and I had this really scary black female drill sergeant yelling at me, and I was just like. Who the fuck are you talking to? <laughs> you know, but I ended up, I ended up actually, uh, I ended up 
actually uh, learning how to how to manage authority better when I was in when I was in. But because of this disability or uh, inability to take orders from people, um, I was put in a, a special area in a container office with another guy that the rest of them didn't want to be around. And he was a captain and he liked to control things. And they, and the, the, the sergeants didn't like that. And, uh, but he was a captain, so he's supposed to control things, but they managed to get him in a little box all alone over there and me in a little box with him (laughs) over there. And so, uh, so my job in Iraq was actually, I had several different things, but my, my main job was to assist the captain. I was officially the captain's driver because officers can't drive in the military because snipers will shoot them. They, they shoot the drivers when they try to stop a vehicle. They shoot at the driver's seat. Okay. So the officers need to be not in the driver's seat. Okay, so you, you were... That's what I was told. You passed the test and you had high math scores, so they said that you should become a mechanic. Did you actually do anything on a vehicle? Yeah. Um, Did you... I mean, that seems weird. They just say, now you're in charge of fixing the engine on uh, SUVs or something. Well, they, they have... It's, it's, it, it's actually organized pretty well. So you have like... An, and actually, it's not really based entirely on rank. The, the more skilled mechanics, they're there. And uh, they have, you know, your, your rookies are underneath them. It's, I actually can't remember all that stuff. Am I, am I stuttering? <laughs> no, you're doing fine. I told you I was high, right? Oh, uh, it's all good. Okay, I'm really high. So, so you just started by, like, changing the oil or, like, cleaning the seats or something? And then they thought yeah. you eventually you would figure out? There's first level one, level two, level three. I love how you're interested in those little things. When you're, well, I, I know when you're doing other other interviews, you'll ask, you'll, you'll, you'll go into that, and I'm like, why is he digging into that? Because <laughs> <laughs> it fine. seems weird. Uh, well, yeah. So there's level one, level two, level three maintenance, and we were level one. Uh-huh. So you're just servicing vehicles, changing the oil and changing the tires, and you know, checking the transmission fluid and stuff. It's, okay. it's Jiffy Lube. We were Jiffy Lube. Okay. You know, and th- so uh, there's other you know, levels as, as you go up. Okay. And I did progress into, eventually I wasn't the captain's driver anymore. Eventually I was a real mechanic and I was changing out, changing entire engines and transmissions and whole body wiring harnesses all yeah. single-handedly. So that's cool. But then they put you in, like you said, as the captain's driver. Uh-huh. And you said that's the position that they're trying to kill. So that's not really a promotion, is it? Shit, I never thought about that. <laughs> now, tr- now you're you're trying to get they're trying to kill you even harder than they were before. Right, right. I didn't think about that. So, but yeah, no, it's that's all right. That's that's what I signed up for, you know. So when you're driving the captain around, were were you in intense areas where people were firing at you? Um. He never. I don't think he left the base one time. One time. I don't think he did even once. See, but I did go out on several missions though myself. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to go anywhere in Iraq to be shot at. Everybody's shot at. Even 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 if you're in the base, you're shot at. Because we we have so much. We, these bases, we take over the airports that are already there. Iraqi airports, mm-hmm. international airports. We take them over, build, build a fence all the way around it, you know, and then we. Turn it into our little, our little city. Yeah, with pizza shops and everything. 
internet and movie movie theaters and stuff, you know, all that. You, you got Filipino massage girls coming from the Philippines and, you know, doing their... You got to make the boys feel at home. Yeah, yeah, sure. I know, I'm all for it. But uh, it, it's funny. You, you eventually forget that you're there because you're just used to it, you know, mm-hmm. so... But you are craving the excitement of it all. And so did yeah. you get to go out and do things? Yeah. So I, I got to go out on a couple of missions with the scouts, and um, which nothing happened. You know, it was just like. What, what, what does scout mean? A scout is an infantry person that that goes on missions ahead of the rest of the troop in order to to see what the terrain is, what the enemy's position is, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So they're sending you out to check things out. But all the while, aren't you thinking, somebody's going to shoot me? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, like, I, I'm kind of hoping it's going to happen, actually, because you want a good story, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you, that's You go to thing. Iraq and you sit inside this fence and these, and these, these ancient – Rockets, they're not even rockets, they're homemade pieces of shit that land. They don't really hit much, just scares people, and you're just sitting there stuck in your thumb and watching DVDs, you know, because there's nothing else to do. So I'm out, so I'm out there, you're kind of hoping that there's something exciting is going to happen, you know. A part of you has, to, I mean, I think, I think everybody, you know, there's a part of you that wants there to be some action. I mean, you, you join the military. I volunteered to go to Iraq. I wasn't forced to. I, I went from Portland to a unit that was in Idaho. I didn't know any of those people. You know, I was, I was looking for for something, uh, but uh, in Iraq, I, I can't say that nothing super, super violent and you know happened really. There was one uh, IED, which means improvised explosive device. Mm-hmm. Civilians, the media. Call it uh, roadside bombs. They call it, and so there was a roadside bomb that was detonated a little ahead of where my Humvee was, and I just felt the uh, the rocks land. It was loud, and then the rocks landed. I mean, it wasn't like it know. wasn't like the duffel bag. No, when I was in Afghanistan, there was a roadside bomb that took out the front tires and poked. 20 holes through the radiator in my Humvee. And that that one was, that was close. That was super close. While you were driving? No, I, I was in the backseat. Okay. So your experience there wasn't quite as dangerous as you thought it would be or as you wanted it to be. And how not, long- as, not as, I wish I would have been infantry. It's a regret, one regret that I have. I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that. Yeah, but I mean, didn't you know people that were in infantry and they would go out on missions and not come back and you're like oh shit that guy's gone i don't think that we had uh a single person die out of the 2000 soldiers that i went with huh so um it sucks because some people depending where you were at on the base got shot at a lot more right so like just um what's his name I'm going to beep it anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my friend, you know, he was on the other side, which was where all of the, it's called the talk, they have all of like the uh, high ranking officers and stuff and all the information goes through there. I mean, that's the head of what the 
what the bad guys would call the head of the snake. But, you know, it's like the – so that's where they, they fired at the most probably. But in, in, that, in that situation, you do get a lot of rockets and mortars. Some people get random snipe, sniper fire from off in the distance, you know. And I guess since I just I – lived, I lived there for three years – I mean, uh, three years. Well, Iraq one and Afghanistan two years. Jesus Christ. So I think if you were to take see if if I just appeared suddenly on, on a base in Iraq and there was rockets coming in, I would be like, where's the McDonald's? But if you take a normal person and they just suddenly appeared on that base and rockets were coming, they'd be like, oh, my God, it's World War Two. You know, I've been desensitized to a lot of it, you know, but. OK, so what changed? Between Shane then and mm-hmm. Shane after three years in the military. Okay, so uh, so I did the Afghanistan thing. Same story as Iraq. There's really not much of a difference except for I was more involved in the actual work and uh, or the laborious, the labor work. But um, I came back from Afghanistan and I was back in Portland doing my thing. Uh, Running around and you know, looking for adventures in Portland. And uh, there's a couple other things that I should mention, but I can't remember. About Afghanistan? No, it's when I came back. Dude, this fruit fly. Ah, uh, yes, that's me. right. I moved to Mexico, so I moved to Cancun and took my friend, my buddy, that was always doing the adventures with me, the one that overdosed and died, and Stephen Matthew Brian Volks was his name. And uh, we're in Cancun, Mexico, and uh, we get this really cheap apartment. <laughs> so at that time, I had just started receiving this disability check for post-traumatic stress disorder, and which I get because when the 4th of July is happening, I'm in the fetal position like this. No, please stop. So and that's, but, re- that's real. <laughs> okay, but wait a minute. That conflicts with what you just said because you said you were desensitized to all of the bombs going off and everything. You're yeah. saying that it is. I agree with you. That does sound contradicting. So uh, I can't explain that. Um, you so, Okay, so you. What I meant to say was that what, violence and like traumatic experiences to me are kind of normal. I'm still going to have the same kind of symptoms even though i feel like i'm a tough guy i'm still gonna have the same kind of symptoms i can't get away from that because you pro your, your your brain does it for you you know programs you to react a certain way you know so you spent a year in iraq you spent two in afghanistan you came back mm-hmm. you were diagnosed with ptsd mm-hmm. and, and a brain injury and a brain injury tbi what happened to the brain uh the uh bomb in uh, the roadside bomb in afghanistan Okay. So you yeah. kind of downplayed that. That was a big okay. deal. I downplayed it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I realized that. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm just trying to make it make sense. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sense too. So, uh, so, you know. So what happened with that? You're just driving. Yeah. You're in the back seat. Mm-hmm. Some sort of, it was a something in the ground or somebody shot a mortar at you? No, it was a roadside bomb. Improvised explosive device, I do. Huh. So... I was moving from Kandahar to Fob Tillman, which was named after the NFL player that quit the NFL and volunteered to go to Afghanistan and then got shot and died. Okay. And I was on the way there. And uh, 
just standard. What they do is when we're in a convoy going somewhere, they're waiting for us. And they got the bomb in the ground and it's disguised. You can't tell it's in there. And they're just waiting. And they got their phone, you know. They just got to call a number and it will ring at that phone that the bomb's attached to and then blow up. So they just watch and they're waiting. And they got people down the road too that will call and say they're, they're on their way. And so you drive on a road. Why not drive off the road? It seems like they would put the bombs on the road, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, there's fences and ditches and okay. people's gardens and farms and stuff, you know. Okay. I mean, we we could. I've, I mean, the people wouldn't be happy about that probably, but. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you're driving down the road. Somebody calls the I, phone and it detonates the bomb. Yeah, that, this is how it happens every time. So. I mean, there's there's different variations of that, but that's basically how it happens. There's a detonator, and there's someone watching to detonate it, and there's somebody up ahead, mile away, that's going to warn him that the army's on their way down. Okay. And uh, so, it was a small convoy. I, I think it was like four or five vehicles, and uh, there's like one of them was a truck, and there was with people in it, other contractors. Um. So, they my. My vehicle was the first. I was in a Humvee, and it was the first one. It's pretty crazy. Excuse me. Can I hear my burping? Sorry about that. It's okay. Dehydrated. There's more in there if you want one. Yeah, I'll grab one in a second. <clears throat> I tried to be sober for this. It's all right. Okay. So it was pretty crazy, actually. I, ha I had a GPS. I even, I even marked the grid coordinates where it happened because I was so, like, just amazed by what had just happened. So the, it goes off. When it goes off, we actually go down into the hole that it made. Because when it when the bomb exploded, it made this crater that you might see on a moon somewhere, you know. And we actually in and out of it, you know. And then the whole convoy kept going forward for maybe a quarter mile or something. And then we stopped because our vehicle couldn't go for, couldn't go anymore. Because you're worried at that point you're going to get ambushed. We couldn't drive anymore because the, the the radiator the radiator had holes going through it. Yeah, and yeah, and we also expect that gunfire will follow that bomb, which often it does. So they want they want the convoy to be forced to stop so that they can unload all of their guns and then run away. It's guerrilla warfare. It's yeah, what will happen probably in America someday. So everybody stops quarter mile past the bomb and we jump out of our vehicles the army the the soldiers that we're with they do like a perimeter but they do like this kind of half-assed lazy perimeter they're just like we're getting used to this now you know i think it was the 82nd Air airborne division that i was those with those fucking guys yeah those guys are serious guys you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh so they get out, and I just immediately start taking pictures, you know, pictures of everything I can take pictures of. You know, I don't even, I'm not even thinking about I'm in Afghanistan. I'm just thinking, I got to take pictures, as many pictures as I can, you know. So I just started taking pictures of everything. And then suddenly uh, a helicopter arrived and started circling around us as U.S. helicopter. And then another one, which was higher than that and going in a bigger circle, was going around. And then the Iraqi army comes plowing through, and they shut off the traffic coming towards us. And then another unit from the U.S. Army comes in and shuts down the traffic from behind us. And then the Iraqi police show up. It's a whole big 
It's a whole big show. It's quite the show. It's quite the show. It's got to be a roadside bomb. Must The whole thing must cost millions of dollars just for one, you know. But you're saying at that point in time, you didn't really realize how detrimental it was going to be to your mental health. I did not. No. And it just kind of stuck with you. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you actually you don't really notice things because you're not looking for them. But eventually, eventually, I, I left Afghanistan. I came home and I was living in Cancun, Mexico. And I'm driving down the street. And this is when it first starts. And at the, I see this uh, mattress right in the center of an intersection in a neighborhood and of course, Mexico, remember, is a third world country. So there's a lot of similarities between like the structures of homes and stuff and mm-hmm. like that you would see in Iraq or Afghanistan. There's a lot of like the developing countries. They all have these, you know, these similarities. So that may have, been, may have triggered that. But I saw this mattress and I was just like, spun around, you know, in this little 89 Chevy Sprint that I had. I bought for two hundred dollars and dro- drove all the way down there from Portland, and uh, and then I and then the noises slowly, eventually, you know, sudden noises, any kind of sudden noise, that's uh, any kind of boom or explosion or stuff would what, just would cause me to act totally irrationally. So what does it do? Does yeah. it trick your brain into thinking you're back there? Um, it can, and that, yeah. and people experience flashbacks. I never had that, so I don't, I, I don't know what that's like. But um, I guess your brain has decided, you know, that, you know, it wants to survive, so it's going to categorize all these other things as being equally dangerous, just in case. So, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, but that was the first time actually. So when that happened that, in Cancun, you realized that. There was an issue. Because you see in Iraq and Afghanistan, they'll put an IED, a bomb, in the mattress and put it in the middle of the road. Yeah. And you can't tell the difference because you just drove by, by you just drove by a bunch of other garbage, you know. So when you see the, the mattress, you're just like, oh, there's another mattress. And then boom. Yeah. Right. So I just started like going way into it. Like I was just – I'd be like – all right, this area is safe. That area is not safe. That could be a bomb. That trash can could be a bomb. I don't know. <laughs> I was doing a little bit of cocaine at the time. So uh, th- that may have, you know, that may have a little bit. not helped. Yeah. I was actually selling uh, cocaine, marijuana and cocaine. And I don't use cocaine myself. But uh, Cancun is a huge spring break city. And they have waves of spring break because Europe and Australia – in the U.S., like they all have spring break at different times, right? So from March, April, May, there's people coming in constantly. And during that time, you can make money real quick. So I I was broke. I mean, I had $300 a month for PTSD that I was getting from, from the VA. And that paid for my rent and my food. But when I needed money, one day I just went, wait a minute. I buy this bag that's worth $20 in the U.S. for $4 here, 3 or $4 here. Why don't I just buy 10 of them, go down to the hotel zone where all the clubs are, and see if I can sling some. And I did, and I made like $200 right quick, you know. And then so I started doing that more and more. And people started asking for other things, you know. And so I started bringing other stuff. And um, it was a it was a cush job. I was 
really popular with all the local How long were club you there? people. The club owners were like, can you come to my club? You know? Yeah. yeah. I was there for six months. Yeah, six crazy months. And my friend Vokes, my, my, my buddy, he was there with me. And we were doing a lot of this together. Um, he uh, ended up marrying a girl and he had to smuggle her into the U.S. Uh, by hiking across the desert out of Mexico into Texas. Why do you have to smuggle her if he was married to her? Uh, Shouldn't she have become a citizen at that point? I, I never thought about it. <laughs> never thought about it. Oh, okay. Well, for one, he was in Mexico illegally. Okay. So that may have may, that may have caused problems for the marriage process. Okay. And he was there illegally because he overstayed his visa. Okay. And this was a guy that you were in... Iraq or Afghanistan with? No. Or just your friend? He was in the National Guard, but we were not, we didn't serve over in theater together. Okay. Uh, he was just like me uh, in, in many ways, you know, always looking, always looking for an adventure. And that was, he thought, you know, he might be able to find some, you know, through the National Guard, I guess. So we went down to Cancun and we were living it up down in Cancun and uh, until we ran into La Familia. Have you heard of these guys? Sounds familiar. La Familia drug cartel runs drugs from cl between Colombia and Mexico, all over Central America. And right now, they're sending drugs in semi trucks across the borders, the border of Mexico, uh, tons and tons of fentanyl pills. And the U.S. government is not stopping them. Mm -hmm. And it's just coming in like just crazy. And when the, and they they got a new policy as of last year. If truck if they find the drugs in the truck, they won't they won't you know, charge the driver anymore. So it's just getting worse. But, but anyways, um, so, so I'm doing my usual and, uh, I'm at, I'm at this club and this guy comes up to me, he starts and he's speaking to me in Spanish. So I speak Spanish fluently. And I was, you know, telling him, I was like, Hey, you want, you want to buy some weed? And, and he goes, yeah, I want to buy some weed, man. I was like, all right, well, how much do you want? He goes, how much do you got? I was like, well, I can get as much as you want. And he goes, well, I want as much as you can give me. And I was like, well, holy shit, this is going to be a good night for me. I was really happy. Like, you know, like my eyes opened up. I suddenly got this energy and I was like, come on, let's go. We're walking down the street and he goes, I want every bag you have. And I was like, I'm going to give you every bag I have, man. It was like this, we had this like foreplay of drug dealing happen, <laughs> happening as we're walking towards my car. And I'm thinking this is going to, you know, set me up for a couple of weeks. I won't have to work anymore. And then this car pulls up. And four or five guys get out of the car and they start walking towards us, except for they're looking like behind us, nonchalantly kind of. And as soon as they get behind behind us, they grab me. And they're like, one guy's got my shirt, another guy's holding my arm, another guy's holding me. And they're just like, and so I'm just like, and I just start like punching this guy in the head. I don't know what's happening. I have no idea what's happening, except for the fact that I'm being abducted by these guys and I'm punching this guy and they drag me over to the car and shove me into the trunk and oh well they pistol whipped me first knocked me out unconscious right so then they put me in the trunk and so then I come to in the trunk and I and I have no memory of being knocked out or even being in Mexico I wake up in the trunk and I have this perfect peace like this I'm just like I'm like oh man what a good day clunk 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 i was like wait a minute <laughs> i'm in a trunk of a car in mexico and my memory came back and i was like oh my god they're gonna kill me 
This was when the drug war was really hot, like a thousand people a month were dying in Mexico. It's still hot. Right. This is this is just after it just got well, I guess it's been that way for a while, yeah. So so uh they drive out to a Walmart. They go it's behind another there's a building next to the Walmart and they go behind that old building. Yeah, yeah. But you're in the back of a trunk mm-hmm. with no idea where you're going for mm-hmm. how long? They act, well, they drove me around for a little while and they're talking to people. I can hear them. I'm banging on the trunk, you know, and they're not saying anything. But I, you speak Spanish, so you I could do. hear what they're saying yeah. when they did say something. I, I can I can hear them, but there's nothing. They're like not acknowledging that in, like I'm even a part of what's happening. They're just like stopping. I can hear them talking to people, you know, and I thought that they were talking to cops, sounded like. And I don't know if you know, but the, dr- the drug cartels and the police are like yeah. best friends. So... Yeah, just like in the movies. And, and so I, I'm banging. I'm expecting someone to open it and be like, point a gun at me or something, you know. But they're just like out there. They're like, yeah, we got this gringo. And uh, ha, 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 you know, it's like, you know, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, are you going to, um, what's going to happen? And, you know, what do they want with me? Surely they can't be, it can't be because of the weed, right? I mean, it's a small <laughs> amount of weed. You know, I mean, the, the cartels are making billions of dollars nowadays, yeah. you know, so and who am I? I didn't think that it was a problem, you know, but uh, we end up behind this building. Um, they they pull me out and cuff me with police like grade handcuffs. Right. So I'm cuffed like this and they put me down on my knees. Right. And this guy comes up to me, pulls the gun and he says, where are you from? And all my information's in my car, and they don't know where the car is. So everything's in my car. All they have is what in my clothes. And so I was like, I'm from Canada. <laughs> you know, I just started making up shit. And uh, he goes, this area belongs to us. And you can't come down here and sell drugs and blah, 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 this whole thing. And then this car pull, pulls up, and this car is, like, really clean. You know, and it has, like, these really nice... Uh, what are they called? Hubcaps, you know, like there's really nice tires and, and it looks like it doesn't belong in that, in that place. And I'm thinking like, this guy gets out, right? It's Pablo. Right. This guy gets out and he's got like, it's three o'clock in the morning and this guy's wearing a suit. And I was like, what the fuck? He comes walking over and they say some things back and forth, you know, and, and, uh, he looks at me. And he gets back in his car and drives away. And the guy goes, we have to kill you now. I was like, I was like, no. I was like, por favor, no me maten, tengo hijos. You know, which is, please don't kill me. I have children. And I start crying. I'm just crying and I'm begging them for my life. Please, please. And they proceed to beat the shit out of me. And just, wet. there's like six or seven guys, boots, fists. And there was like a stick in there at some point, just beating the shit out of me. And I couldn't see anymore. My jaw was all fucked up. I broke six ribs. And suddenly everybody's gone. I'm like blood and tears. And I'm looking around and I'm naked. They took off all my clothes, my underwear, everything. So they had to beat you up while you're naked. I can't remember if I was. I can't remember if they took the clothes off afterwards or before. But I, it was just—it was a mess. It was. I was just like so. So all of a sudden, I get this adrenaline, like, holy shit, <laughs> you know. So I go. I don't know what on what 
the fuck I was thinking, but I go right back to where they found me. And I was like, where's La Familia? I'm on, I'm, I'm high and I'm on a, adre- I'm adrenaline. And you're like, still naked. I'm naked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, where are they at? You know? <laughs> and this police officer comes over and he's like, where's your clothes? And I was like, I was like, I was like, your country took my clothes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that was the last day that I ever sold drugs. I never sold a single drug ever since. So, uh. <laughs> So, so how long did you stay there after that? Weren't you scared they're going to come back and find you and kill you? I stayed there for another two months, but I didn't go back into that area. This is in the touristy part I of didn't, Cancun. I didn't go to the tourist area again after that. Okay. No. I just went there for the first time in January. Oh, and so okay. I, I have like this perfect mental yeah, picture of it. Great. That's, yeah. That area, you know, where you have that long, it's all the hotels are on the beach mm-hmm. there. And then mm-hmm. you go to the kind of like the middle of it and they have all the clubs are in that one area. Yep. And you could walk from your hotel to the club areas on that nice little walkway. That's, yeah. that's where I sold that was my you. stuff right there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, and then after a couple weeks after that, I, I, I learned that they uh, caught a, a guy from New York and killed him. For doing the same thing that I did, so that's so insane. They didn't kill you. It is. It is. They could have. The, that's the closest I've been to death, ex- next to the roadside bomb in Afghanistan. Yeah, man. They yeah. could have just thrown you in the pig or the the pen with the pigs, you know, or yeah. dumped you in the ocean or wherever. Yeah. Would have made a better story too. Well, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they would be telling the story. <laughs> yeah, they would be telling the story. So. So, um, by, you know, I think at that point there was a turning point there. I became kind of, I was exhausted because my brain was over, was overworking itself. I was constantly worrying about the things that my brain thought would happen again from Iraq and Afghanistan. And now I have all this, I have this new stuff. Now I'm afraid of, uh, if there's five, five brown guys come walking towards me and I'm in a foreign country. I'm a little nervous, you know, just your brain does this to you and that's what it is, but that's what PTSD is. So, uh, well, it's also life experience and then stereotypes. And I mean, that's a, that's a rational thing to be scared of if mm -hmm. it happened to you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, of course. Totally. So, uh, that, that was, I ended up leaving Cancun and going in, did you go to Chichen Itza? To see the, pyra- uh, the pyramid? No, I went to the place where you can go snorkeling. You know what I'm oh. talking about? Uh, well, there's a lot of those. There's a Cozumel or, or, or Tulum. There's a, many, many of them. I can't remember Isla de Mujeres. There's so it's many. south. Snorkeling. It's, it's like an hour it's away, like, south. Like hundred snorkeling places in that part it's, of the world. It's really cool down there. It is. Yeah. I like it. I love it, actually. I don't know I why mean, America doesn't just buy Mexico and <laughs> well, commercialize it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty girls down there. Well, no, it's 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 a beautiful area, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of problems. And if you're trying to sell some weed in a club in Cancun, you might get fucked up. You definitely are going to get fucked up if you do it long enough, because you will get caught eventually. And the cartels, they are the law. They are the law. Yeah, for sure. So I had this thing at, where I was starting to think that you know maybe I should try to find something different you know i should continue the you know going on adventures but not 
not uh, not the dangerous ones. Mm-hmm. You know. So I went uh, to this little farm uh, in near Chichen Itza, and I I worked there for a couple months, just doing uh, just repeating the same things that farmers do every day. Uh, and then I got really tired of that after a couple of months. And my sister came to visit me, and my mom came to visit me. Cool thing about about my mom, no matter where I am in the world, except for Iraq, her, she comes to visit me there. <laughs> so. So then I go home back to Portland and um, no, I went to Denver, actually. Denver, Colorado. I got an apartment and twiddled my thumbs for about six months. I wasn't sure what to do. And uh, I, got a, I got a world map from offline. I found a map that was just enormous. I put it on the wall and I had... I had thought up till then and even till now, I had always thought of, thought of myself as like a world-class traveler, you know. I travel a shitload and I go to places that nobody goes and I go to a lot of places. And when I meet other travelers, my first question is, how many countries have you been to? Because, you know, I want to I wanna be, I, I want to have gone to more. So uh, I put tax on every place that I had been in the world on this map. And after I did that, I realized that I had not been to many places. I thought I had, you know, but I really I hadn't. I, and I realized, oh my gosh, like all of South America is empty, all of Africa is empty, like Australia and all of Asia. It's like I, I've been to like Europe and the Middle East, and you know, my ego was deceiving me. So I was like, I got to do some work here, you know. And I sobered up and and uh, I got my shit in order. And I bought this 1989 Chevy Sprint, and I aimed for the southernmost tip of Argentina, a little town called Ushuaia, Ushuaia, Argentina. How do you have money to do all this stuff? So uh, once I got that $300 disability check from the VA, I decided that I would make it my main priority to increase that to as much as I possibly can so that I could continue doing my thing, which is really cool adventures. So you're saying you get the maximum amount from the VA? Well, actually, there's not a maximum amount. People think that there is, including veterans. Don't be deceived. You can get, where's the camera? (laughs) You can get more. I get about $5,000 a month. $5,000 $5,000 a month? Tax-free, yeah. For, like, how? What, what do you say? You say that you're, you, you have mental disabilities and you need help? Like, what do you do? I, I well, in the beginning, I took a test. And yeah, and they thought you were awesome at math. I went through some therapy. No, no, that's a different one. <laughs> There's the hospital. VA hospital is what I'm talking about, not the... <laughs> um, it felt like a lot, but the prices have gone up a lot in Portland. So that's actually not that much now. At five years ago, $5,000, I think, would be like, wow, that's pretty good. But now it's like, well, okay, $2,000 for rent. So, But uh, I live in Nepal where it costs $200 to live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so the government will cut you a check yeah. while you're living in Nepal, mm-hmm. and it costs you $0.09 cents to rent a place. Yeah, they take the – t- it's the – TBI. See, I got a disability rating for PTSD, and I have one also for TBI. And because they are convinced that I started abusing drugs in order to cope with the PTSD symptoms, they also gave me a disability rating 
for drug and uh, poly substance abuse. So I have all these different. Maybe that is why you do drugs. Could be. Could be. Uh, so it just it stacks up. There's many people like this. Many soldiers like this. I think there's like twenty percent of us are, are doing this. Yeah, I mean, what's yeah. the what's the suicide rate of somebody yeah. who's been in combat? It's it's high. It is, and also they come back and be violent. Yeah. One of my buddies came back, tried to go shoot somebody. The guy shot him. Um, that was Justin Barklow, Sar- uh, Sergeant Barklow. And another guy came home. Actually, a dozen guys came home and killed themselves right away. Mm-hmm. After a couple years, not right away. See, the PTSD for some reason doesn't show up for about two years. And uh, it's true. It really... The PTSD, for some reason, it takes two years, about just just about two years before you start to experience it, like the symptoms, mm-hmm. you know, and then it starts to actually get in the way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you accept money from the government for what you sacrificed yourself for in order to live now because you can't do a, a regular job? Sacrificed? You sacrificed your your life and your your well being and your mental. You want another one? Yeah, can I grab one? Yeah, go for it. Okay. No, what I'm saying is like yes, sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? It is. I don't. I don't think that I did that much, honestly. Yeah, but dude, you still, you spent three years of your life. I volunteered to go. I was paid while I went. I don't think that actually veterans should get that that much money now that I think about it because it, it's beyond that. I, I, got eight, I racked up $80,000 at the university in foreign countries and they paid for it. And healthcare and my wife is going to school now. They're paying for it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a veteran, disabled veteran, so it's really a lot. You can't. There's no. There's no other job that that gives those kinds of benefits. Not the postman or the. Yeah, but I mean, you can't really put a price on that. I yeah, mean, I w- you know that could, that could affect you for the rest of your life. You know. Yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it, they owe me. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, like, because, you, I mean, you could well, argue either well, side. You, but you made a good point, though. Um, see the. The brain injury thing is subtle, but it really gets in the way of – if somebody gives me a list with 20 things to do on it today, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And there's reasons for that. And they, they, they have me convinced that I do have a TBI. I don't think I do actually. Personally. So it's TBI? Traumatic brain injury. Okay. Okay. From the roadside bomb in Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, – which I was not a soldier – at the time, so I don't know how they figured that, but whatever. Um, I, I don't know how they make those decisions. Okay, so you're getting money from the government uh, due to the fact that you risked your life in a foreign country for and a I bunch do, of... And I do love my country. Yeah, I'm not saying you don't. Yeah. I'm just saying, so that's how you, you, you financed your trip. You decided that you wanted to go to the tip of Argentina. You bought the... 89 Chevy Sprint. Yeah. From my father for $200. And at the time, I I didn't have that much money, but uh, it was like $1,000 a month at that time or something. Okay. I was living living 
pretty cheaply for that two-year period. It was a two-year period. I spent two years. Uh, wait, you confuse me. The Chevy Sprint. No, I, I drove the Chevy Sprint down from Portland to okay, Mexico. Okay, that's what I thought you said. But when you were just then talking about Then I went from Mexico to Denver. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then in so. Denver, I had the map, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to travel. So then I got a backpack, and I went by bus overland in many different forms from Portland to Ushuaia, Argentina, except for the Panama Canal where there is no road, and I had to take a boat. There's no road? There's no road. You've heard of the Pan American Highway? I've heard of the Panama Canal. Yeah, okay. You can cross that, can't you? Doesn't mm -hmm. it close? Yeah, you sure can, yeah. But you can't, you're yeah. saying you have to walk it. You can't take a bus. It's, uh, there's an area uh, in the southern part of pa Panama uh, near the Colombia border uh, that's called the Darien Gap. And uh, it's controlled by drug cartels. And it's very dangerous for anybody to go there. I almost attempted it while I was there with another crazy guy that I found that was really awesome. But we decided not, not to do it because it was monsoon season and there's no roads. So you're on trails that the locals have made. And it's we didn't want we thought maybe it wasn't a good time. And also I was stoned. <laughs> I was lazy. But I should have done that. That would have made an awesome story. I'm sure we would have got kidnapped or something cool. Well, yeah. if, if I remember right, the, the Panama Canal was um... – it was facilitated by, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt in like 1903, I want to say. Because before then, if you wanted to get around, you had to go all the way to the bottom of South America. And so America saw an opportunity to get their ships through quicker. And I think it was Roosevelt who, who made that path happen. And so then... It was Roosevelt, yeah. I think McKinley actually was the first president to voice and interest in that. Okay. But Go. then we had some sort of vested interest in that country. For, mili or, for military purposes. Yeah. And so you're saying now it's the cartels that run it. it, it Absolutely. Okay. Just Google Darien Gap. Okay. Yeah. So in the, in the Darien Gap, you have several different people. You have the, the drug cartels, you have the, mil the militias, which look like the army, but they're not the army. And then you have the army from Panama. And then you also have Groups coming in from Colombia, it's a it's a shit show. You're saying all these dudes are standing around with guns. Do not go to the Darien Gap. Okay, <laughs> it's a dangerous place. If I'm not going to go, you know, <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, yeah. So you got down there, and how did you get across then? So, so as I'm going down there, yeah. So uh, they have they have ferries. You can fly or you can take a ferry. And you put your car on the ferry too. But I didn't have a car at the time. But So you take a boat around to this port in Colombia. And you're there. Colombia sounds dangerous as fuck. Colombia is not as dangerous in, in my experience. But it's definitely one of those places where there are certain areas that you don't want to go. There are There's three different regions that are in different parts of Colombia that, that you don't want to go because they have they make money by holding ran, people ransom. Well, that's also where a majority of the cocaine comes from, yeah. isn't it, right? That, I, all I can think of is Pablo Escobar yeah. when I think of Colombia. That's, yeah, that's Medellin and where, where he was from. Uh, that city is beautiful, but that's also 
there's a lot of drugs in Medellin. I mean, in the streets, it's everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Colombia is one of the coolest countries I've been to. I've been to about 50 countries, depending on how you define a country. Uh, but, you know, because like some people say Palestine's not a country, you know. So, uh, which I have been to Palestine. And that's, a, that's kind of a crazy place, too. But... Uh, Colombia, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful and most interesting places on the planet. Out of all the places that I've been, that's like my number one, two, or three. I can't figure it out, but it's just a just a gorgeous. It's just a. I love I love Colombia. Out of all of the countries that I went to in Latin America, that's the best one. Well, it probably helped that you could speak Spanish fluently, right? Of course. Okay, because were you ever scared? Of Especially after what happened in Cancun, weren't you worried? Uh, yes, yes. Weren't you worried you're going to get kidnapped yes. and, and this, cuffed again? Oh yeah, and this whole this whole two year trip. You know, I should say that when I started this this trip down, trying to get to the southern tip of South America, I was looking for something spiritual, uh, and I was a total atheist and didn't believe in anything at all, and. I wouldn't at that time when I started it. I would not have described it as I'm looking for something spiritual, but I was looking for something, something, something that could, you know, because they say when you make that trip all the way down to Ushuaia, and once you get there, people are changed by that trip, right? And so I did that whole trip, and eventually I got down to Ushuaia, and I walked up these big steps to see the Southern Sea, and I was like, you know, looking for the thing that was going to happen, and nothing happened. Yeah, so. That's why they say it's more about the journey than the destination, yeah. right? But this whole two years that I was in South America, you know, I was not trying to engage in, in like dangerous things. I wasn't carrying any kind of weapons. I wasn't doing hard drugs. I, you know, I wasn't doing nothing like that. I was going to, uh, I was taking classes at universities or just random places. Like they have like these occultic places where they, they teach stuff there. Like that happened after the ayahuasca, though. But, you were taking classes while you were traveling? Also, I took Spanish classes too. I was in a Spanish school for uh, th three months in Ecuador and then five months in Bolivia. And then I did uh, a three-month course uh, with uh, with these, these occult people. But how did you even know what you were going to do? You just rolled up into town and then found a hostel or what? Yeah, youth yeah. hostels, yeah. Okay. You, I stayed at youth hostels everywhere I went be, because I couldn't afford a hotel. Okay. And then when you were there, you made connections and figured out where you could go study and do stuff. Oh, yeah. And that's the awesome thing about youth hostels. You know, it's on it's on the wall. You you walk in and it's on the wall. You want to you want to do this? You want to do that? Call this person? Call that? It's, it's like uh, – so it's very easy. Especially language schools, it's easy to find those. I mean, yeah. But the majority of the people in hostels are foreigners. They're not locals. Yeah, yeah. So you would just rely on like the, the poster board or whatever to find something that was local that you could go do. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you never had any idea how long you were going to stay in each place. You just kind of, if you liked it, you stayed longer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There, there wasn't a plan except for just to get down to the south of South America to Ushuaia. I met a Korean girl uh, in Ecuador at the Spanish school. And uh, 
we ended up traveling together for about eight months. And, uh, you know, I promised her some marriage and stuff. And so she followed me all over the place and my old tricks. <laughs> and, uh, when, yeah, when it was time to separate, she was like, you said you were going to marry me. <laughs> and I was like, well, and you believe that? Well, so she's still a good friend. I visited her in Korea afterwards. Um, so where, where are we at? So I went to Colombia and then Ecuador. And then uh, I kind of, I went down the coast of Peru and skipped all the major tourist things like Machu Picchu and Colca Canyon. Didn't you want to see it though? Well, I, I did on the way back up. Okay. So, and I entered into Chile and went all the way down Chile and then crossed into Argentina and then went all the way down Argentina. That, and then finally reached my destination at the south. That whole thing took six months to get down there. Because I was in Ecuador, Colombia for two months, Ecuador for three months. I had long stays in those two countries because I like those countries. It didn't at any point you ever just be like, ah, fuck it, I'm just going to live here now? Uh, yes. Uh, in Peru, on my second, on the way back up. Because I went all the way down and then all the way back up uh -huh. to Portland. So um, when I was in Santiago de Chile, in the capital of Chile, which is a really nice European-style country – you don't even know that you're in South America, actually. It's very very uh, modern and stuff. Uh, and I met this guy from Canada, this really cool dude. He was telling me about – he was telling the whole group in the hostel one day about his experiment or experience tripping on ayahuasca with this shaman. You know, And he's like, I was flying through the solar system. I'm looking at the planets and stuff. And I was just like – what? We don't have this shit in Portland. <laughs> I got to try this. And I'll, you know, in all honesty, my intention in going to the shaman was just a trip, you know. So, he gave me the information for this guy named Percy Garcia Lozano. And a truly authentic shaman and great soul. And so, I cruised back on up into Peru. My mom came down, met me in Peru, and we went to see Machu Picchu, and we went to see all these other tourist places, and then we got on a boat, and this huge, this huge, it must have been like 150-foot boat with about two or 300 people on the boat, mostly women and children. And it's five days down the river, down the Amazon River, to a lo to a place that has no roads. So you can fly or you can take a boat. And typically the locals, the men will fly and they'll send the women with the children on the boat because they can't pay for a whole bunch of plane tickets, you know, because of the children. And since you're the one that gave birth to them, you got to take the boat with the children, you know. <laughs> so, so we're here with those Kids are screaming and crying and stuff, you know. We ended up moving to the top of the boat where the cargo was, and there, it was empty, and it was a beautiful experience. My mom and I, we had two hammocks. We're just swinging up on this, going through the Amazon, you know. And it took us five days to get to our destination where the shaman lived to his little camp. Did I miss something? No, no. You're no, there? Okay. So, uh, so we get to this, this place called Iquitos in the Peruvian Amazon. Amazon is huge, you know, and Peru has a little bit of it. Ecuador has a little bit of it. Brazil has a lot of it. Colombia, it's just it's just everywhere, you know. Everybody has a part of the Amazon down there. And this place, Iquitos, 
is surrounded by by water. There's no way to. I mean, you could build a road if you know if you're like if you want to spend that much money. I don't think that they can do that right now <laughs> down in there in Peru. It's just a. It took it takes four or five days to get there. Um, unless you fly, in that case, it takes like half an hour or something. Forty five. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but uh, we thought it would be you know cool to. I want, you know, I want my mom to really experience the – what better way to experience the Amazon than to float down the Amazon on a boat, you know. It was – it was uh, it, the, the boat was uh, kind of its own little uh, town on the boat. They had like this kitchen area. They had like this – the prostitutes area. But they were really guys that were dressed you know, with dresses, you know. We, we saw this d- – this, Tall, skinny, sixty-year-old Dutch guy come by, and he was like, "Hey, you come with me." <laughs> Goes into this private room, and they come back out, and they're like, "It's it's really dirty." Prostitutes on the boat, yes, sir. and they were dudes, yep. and people thought they were girls. No, no, I think everybody knew. Everybody knew, yeah. but yeah, that so, sounds so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's really like. Like they're like, well, we got some tourists on the boat. Let's get some prostitutes, but we don't have girls, so let's get dudes. Yeah, well, that's. Uh, or you think that that people wanted dudes? I think that they've been doing it for a long time on those boats, and I think that Europeans and Americans they know about this, and and these guys have been coming back here for years and years just so that they can get their lady boys. That's so weird. You know, there's lady boy porn, right? So you know, there's a demand somewhere. Some I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to admit to anything myself, but uh, somebody likes it. <laughs> so the the goal, though, is to get to this destination to meet up with the shaman. All these yeah. people on the boat are going there to see the shaman and no, do no. ayahuasca. No, they're all going to Iquitos. They live there. It's a city in the jungle. Okay. It's like the size of Gresham. It's a pretty big, pretty big town, you know. There's like 400,000 people there probably. Huh. But like you said, the only way to get there is through the boat unless you fly. But Yeah, but not many the locals fly. don't do that. No. That's a luxury, you know. So why why is this dude hanging out in the forest to give people ayahuasca? So he's doing that because his father did it and his grandfather did it. It's passed on. It's passed on. And if and you're not allowed to say no, you have to do it. And if you don't, then the spirits will destroy your life oh wow! so so he committed himself to it at one point and some guy from poland or something a lady from poland came over and made a documentary and then like people just started coming like all the time and stuff so then he made a big investment now it's he has this really nice camp and with a temple and everything and there's this really big ceremony temple and then like the the baptism pool i guess you could call it because he has he has to like cleanse you with actual water in a, in the, the Amazon before you do the ceremony. It's like getting baptized. Yeah, it's similar to getting baptized. Yeah. So they grow. I don't even know. How do you get ayahuasca? Ayahuasca, there's a vine that grows wi- okay. wild in the Amazon, and you look for it. And, so they harvest it themselves, turn it into juice, and yeah. then... And they mix it. They they mix it with eleven other plants, hmm. and they make this tea with it. And it's a medium that allows them to communicate with spirits, gods, beings. I did it in March. Whatever for you want to call time. it. Really? Yeah, I did here in Portland. You didn't mention that. 
<laughs> it is here in Portland with no shaman. With no shaman, what was it like? It was incredible. It was. So I, you had a positive experience. I, I got a video I'll send to you. Okay, after this. cool, cool. Uh, it was very positive. If you would like, you can come down for a few days. I'll be there for a month. You can come and check it so out. That's where you're going to go directly after this. I am, and I'll be sober. Also, I won't be like this. So when you went there, you had never done it before. Had you done psychedelics before? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've okay. done mushrooms and LSD. Okay. But you knew it was going to be different, right? I had read in a National Geographic article, this journalist told his story about uh, his experience with ayahuasca and how he threw up a little black snake in his bucket. And it was in National Geographic's about 20 years ago. And that's the only time I had ever heard of it. Uh -huh. And then when that guy in Santiago de Chile said, I went to the Amazon, I did ayahuasca, I was like, no way. I, re I just remembered. All I knew that was that you trip and that people think that their hallucinations are real. And I'm a tripper, so. So uh, so we we go to the camp. Shall I continue? Yeah, yeah, go. We go to the camp and my mom is with me. And... Uh, this guy, Al, from Australia, I'm trying to get to go down there with me right now, and uh, a few other people, and um, we're laying down on our backs in a circle. The shaman is doing his thing. He's got the, the drum, and he's doing the... Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, did you have to guy. pay this guy? Yes. How much did you pay him? Uh, it was pretty cheap, actually. Nowadays, because he, he actually has recently, I paid like $100, I think it was. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Per ceremony. Okay. So, but I ended up staying there for a while, so the price went down. But um, you can go with the shaman that does it for free if you like. In Iquitos, there's a million shamans. As soon as you get, as soon as you get off the airplane, people are like, they're like, come to my house. I am shaman. I'll give you ayahuasca. You know, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm not into that. He's like, cocaine. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you're not a real shaman are you <laughs> hard times entrepreneur so, yeah so i did so the first ceremony first of all they tell you to do this diet did you read about that uh i've read some things yeah okay so you're supposed to do this diet that you know you're, you're supposed to abstain from all these different stuff i didn't do that mm -hmm. at all and uh, you're not supposed to have sex or anything i broke all all the rules <laughs> like after the ceremony, I just got on the bus and went back to the city and partied and <laughs> just came back and did another ceremony the next day while people are like in their little huts, like meditating, trying to like, I didn't need that apparently because yeah. every, everybody that was there just didn't really get that powerful of an experience. They did the diets, they did all this stuff and I didn't. I think if th there's something that you need, you're going to get it. Yeah. If you don't need something, then you're probably not going to, maybe you're not going to get it, you know? So... So I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm laying there on my back, and my mom's over here, and Al from Australia's over here. And we take we take the drink. You know, it's one at a time. You come up to the shaman, he gives you the drink. It tastes like shampoo. It's so difficult to swallow for me, yeah, especially at, after the 30th time. It's just like, why am I doing this? I haven't seen aliens in weeks. Where are they? <laughs> Still drinking. So it's not addictive. Um, it's disgusting, actually. <laughs> it's a wretched, wretched flavor of... I feel like I'm drinking shampoo. For, uh, anyways, 
So we, we drink it and then we lay back down and there's little buckets next to every little mattress that we're laying on, you know. And I'm laying there and uh, suddenly I got a shit. And I was up and I was like, oh. And I'll go, oh, Shane, Shane feels something. Because everyone's like, are we going to feel anything? What's happening? Are we, do you feel something? Do you feel something? You know? And I was like, oh, I feel something. So I go rushing into the, to the toilets. And I sit down on the toilet and I proceed to do the most, the most glorious shit of my life. It was so amazing. And I never experienced that. I was just like, I couldn't stop pooping. I didn't even know where it came from. It just kept... <laughs> going it just kept going and i was just like there's more oh my god it feels so this good. is amazing and i was just loving it you know yeah. <laughs> so i go finally i'm just I, I i'm trying to clean myself but you know you're seeing things and i can't mm-hmm. tell if i've is there sh- poop all over me i can't even tell i'm covered in shit <laughs> so i go back out and i lay down and that's right when i shit is when when like all the visual stuff starts happening yeah so i lay down and i'm laying there and al goes like, you guys see that up there? I said, see what? It's just like a, the ceiling of the temple, the bamboo structure. And he goes, oh, they're here, man. They're here. You know, I was like, about 10 minutes later or so, suddenly I'm, I look around me and they're gone. Al's gone. My mom's gone. And I have no idea. I'm hallucinating. I'm thinking that what I'm experiencing is real. And I can't move my body. I can't move it at all. And it frightens me. It frightens me a little bit because, you know, am I, will I ever be able to move my, my body again? Is this permanent? <laughs> you know? And so uh, suddenly these two giant headed, like alien looking, like you see the, you know, the classic, the grace. Yeah. Yes. That, those guys, two of them come walking over. And they've got some stuff that they're looking at on the side over here. I don't know what that is. I can't even see it. But they're, like, doing something, and they're reaching in, reaching inside my body, like, reaching in. And I said, I said, what are you doing? And I'm not talking. I'm talking without my mouth moving. And they're talking back to me. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we're like the doctors. And I was like, suddenly I just felt really peaceful and happy. And I was like, oh, okay, well. That's fine, you know. So I'm, I'm laying there, and uh, suddenly I reappear. It, it was just, it's just, it's just like a, a thirty seconds. Suddenly I reappear back in the temple, and Al is outside, naked. He's not even in the temple. My mom's laying there, and she's like, "Colors," you know. <laughs> and there's Alice outside, butt naked, going, "Take me." I'm ready. He wants to go with the aliens. Uh-huh. And I, he was already into that stuff kind of, you know. And so uh, I was like, Mom, like, did you see? Was I here just a second ago? You know, I'm trying to rationalize. I'm telling myself, I just took ayahuasca. Obviously, I'm hallucinating. But there's a part of you that, that's telling you that you, you, you're not hallucinating, mm-hmm. right? And the the unique thing about ayahuasca is group hallucinations. Have you heard about this? I haven't heard it with ayahuasca, but I've heard it with um, – I was talking to somebody about group dreaming. Oh. I forget what it's called. But when you share a dream with someone, which I've never experienced before. But, yeah, I mean you put 10 people in a tent 
and they're all frying on ayahuasca, there's a strong potential that something's going to happen together. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is the strange thing though, is that these, uh, so these lights came down, they're like not perfectly white, but they're just a little bit like they're kind of almost yellow. They're orbs. We called, we called them orbs because they were, they were globes that were transparent, but they had light in them. Mm -hmm. And I sound, I sound like I'm trying to describe something from like, like some tribal guy from 2000 years ago, trying to describe <laughs> a plane, like it was shiny, it had wings. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm seeing this orb and we're all seeing the orb. It, they come down around the temple, my mom and Al and me and Shelly, this other lady from uh, Wisconsin. She, we keep asking, you see that, right? We keep ver verifying that we're seeing, are you guys seeing it? Are you sure you're seeing this? You know, and like, oh yeah, we're seeing it, you know. We're there for a few hours and the ceremony is over. And we go back to my hut because it was the biggest and we could fit everybody in it. And the shaman went to sleep. And we're hanging out there and we're not even like seeing visual stuff anymore. Like the 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 strong, the powerful hallucinate, hallucination part of it is has passed. But the orbs are still there. So, so somebody listening to this story might say, okay, so the hallucination part wasn't over, but these orbs, I don't think that they were a part of the hallucination. I, I can't explain what they were. They, they kept coming down, but they wouldn't let us get close enough to reach them. You know, they stayed just 15 feet away from us and wherever they were, they were always just far away. And, uh, we took a picture. We got me and uh, Shelly and Alan took a picture with the orb floating right above, about 15 feet back behind us. There was a hundred of them, and we just took a picture of that one. And did it show up in the photo? It sure did, and it, it was on my Facebook until I deleted that bitch. But and I don't have another copy of it, unfortunately. But uh, you just have to take my word, just like all the other UFO experiences <laughs> people have. Yeah. So, did the shaman drink with you guys? Uh, yeah, he does yeah, it every yeah. time. Yeah, he does. Every time. He does, which is why he has blind children and children with no limbs and stuff. Yeah, man, you can't do it every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's their tradition. So I didn't realize it, what was happening, but uh, I was just blown away. I mean, it was just like all of the fear and anxiety and all of the, like, all of that was gone because when I was traveling around South America for that two years, I was like, what's my SOP standard operating procedure. I was like, all right, if somebody does this or somebody does that, I do this. Okay. I had like all these plans and stuff, you know, to prevent, you know, another drug cartel abduction from happening, you know? And so I'm trying, so the whole time I'm in South America, I'm just like, you know, all right, when you get into a taxi, if he goes the wrong way, make him stop immediately. So he doesn't take you to sell you to somebody, you know, and so they can hold you for ransom. And that's Colombia. I was in Colombia. So that was a good idea. So, so I had all these, that, that's just like, it was just kind of like gone for at least in that moment during those days. And I decided I wanted to stay. I told the shaman, I was like, can I stay here for six months? And he was like, uh, <laughs> he was like, okay. <laughs> He's like, how much money you got? <laughs> yeah. So I, I had to pay, but, uh, we, we did a little exchange. I ended up being his interpreter for a while. So, so how many times did you do it? I did it about 30 times. 30 times. Maybe a little bit more than 30 times, yeah. 
and I didn't want to leave. So that it was just incredible the changes that I had for a for a solid six month period of my life. I didn't have any symptoms of PTSD or uh, or any kind of like nightmares or I was just a positive person. You know, I was social. I would hang out. I'm, I'm kind of a hermit, actually. Yeah, I would never do something like that. I just did this because I do it whatever Jesse thinks. Oh, it's cool. I love that guy. I do too. Bessie. <laughs> Bessie Gyron. So, um, but, then it, but then eventually it wore off and I felt like, oh, man, I'm going to have to do another trip. But I was on the other side of the world by then. So, you know, it doesn't. You you kind of have to. I think you have to keep doing it. I don't know, but um, from that point on, it's just it changed it changed the trajectory of my life. It's just immensely. I, I can't explain. Like suddenly, I was just like, oh my gosh, I want to know everything. I started getting into whatever spiritual tradition it was. I would I would learn that. I went to Colombia next, but I went back to Colombia uh, again, and I stayed there for eight months. And while I was there, I was just Digging into like energy healing, Reiki, tarot card reading. Uh, I, was just, I tried everything. I tried levitation. I tried communicating with the dead. I tried every different kind of crazy thing that you can imagine. I just I, I tried because I because I suddenly believed for the first time in my life that there was something else out there, you know, apart from this material existence. You know, I suddenly had this like it opened up a part of my brain where I suddenly had like an interest in being spiritual. Mm-hmm. A part of my humanity that that was that I had crushed during those years of living so, such risky such a risky life and being being violent and crazy and stuff you know and doing drugs and so were you sober at that time uh, while I was in South America yeah for that two year period yeah besides ayahuasca um, most you most of the time yeah. yeah. 80, yeah. 80% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, because my question was, weren't you ever scared if you were doing drugs? You can't that... weed? No. Okay. I just mean like, if you're in a foreign country. Then I was sober the whole time, yes. Yeah. I mean, it just yeah. seems scary to do yeah. anything. Like, look at the um, that basketball player who had CBD in uh, Russia. Yeah. And now she's going to prison for nine, nine years. years. Yeah. Shit's terrifying. Yeah. It's her fault. I, I warned my friends too. I, I tell my friend Carl when he had to pass through China to get to Nepal. And I was like, dude, do not bring fucking weed in your bag, no matter what you do. Don't you bring know? Advil. Don't take anything. But he's the type that would be like, try to try it anyways. But yeah, I have uh, some friends that are going to Singapore, and you can't even take gum into Singapore. Oh, really? Yeah, they supposedly have a garbage can right when you get off the flight. And it's like, put your drugs, your alcohol, your gum, whatever else is elite, yeah. like, throw it here. As soon as you pass this checkpoint. Have you been there? I haven't been there, no. In my opinion, it's the most overrated city in the world. Oh, so you've been there? I have. Okay. Did oh, you d- take gum? Did I tell you I hadn't? No, oh, I just, okay. I'm no. talking to you like you haven't been there. No, I've d- I d- I definitely been there. Um, I didn't try to take gum. Uh, I had heard, like, the streets are so clean. Like, if you spit, you get a ticket. Mm-hmm. They're not that clean. Yeah. They're just as clean as any other modern. It's a developed country. You okay? were going to say Portland and you changed your mind. I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could have said that 10 years, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's not clean But right no, now. it's not clean anymore. No. Oh, unfortunately. So Singapore is just, that's, that's later in the story. But um, 
so so you made it up to Columbia. That's right. I'm back to Columbia, and I'm also dating this French Canadian girl, and we're really, and she's also really spiritual, and so we're like feeding off of each other, and having this really crazy spiritual experience and stuff. And I was also taking tattoo classes, so I was learning how to tattoo and tattoo people and stuff. And so, and then, uh, oh, I was taking an art class, I a painting class, a drawing class, and tattooing class. That was my thing for eight months there. Uh, and so, all the while, you're still getting checks mm. deposited you just had some bank account that you could access somehow yes but at the time i was in um, my, my debit card yeah they just wire it it goes directly from the treasury to my bank in usa bank and then i just put it's, the credit card in the atm well yeah and you were rich as fuck if you're in south america no not really unfortunately two thousand dollars isn't really gotta pay for hotels and food and i mean I don't think rich people feel rich, probably. <laughs> Maybe, I think, I was just thinking about my Colombian friends that I met there. They probably did think that I was wealthy, but, you know, for an American, just like, yeah. Uh, while I was in Colombia, I was also uh, writing essays online. And I was making about, it depended on how much I would write, but I could make $1,000 a month doing that. So I was writing essays, 123teachme.com, to four students all over the world unethical i realized but who gives a shit what 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 were the essays about anything why would why was anybody paying you a thousand dollars no no not for the essay i mean it would be like fifty dollars for an essay two hundred dollars for an essay it depends how long it is whoa whoa, whoa. these are like college kids are like i don't want to do my homework will you do it for me i was saying a thousand dollars a month i could make in one in one month I can... i'm trying to understand what it is though what is the right it is there's several websites online where you can do uh, you can do a, a, stu a student's homework for them, and you get paid to do it. Whoa! Yeah, I did that for a couple of years actually, until I was studying again in Kathmandu. I, I guess I don't know why I never thought that would be a thing, but that seems yeah like it could be very lucrative. It can be, and so you, you have a profile, and you show the areas. You know, mine is liberal, liberal arts, history, and political science, and all those areas. I can write about that. And once you do a lot of them, you're, it's like, you know, it's really easy. You What's the website or the connection you made? Faces, statements, supporting arguments, conclusions. It's like a, uh, what, uh, one, two, three, teach me. One, two, three, teach me? Yeah. Huh. Okay, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> yeah, I can send you a link. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'll send that to you. Um, it's a... Uh, they get a portion. They get a percentage, obviously, because uh -huh. they, they got to make money. But uh, yeah, sometimes you know you get a really good one, like a ten pager. It's like student is British money, right? <laughs> so I got seven hundred bucks one time. I just, just popped out this. I just mumbled ten pages. <laughs> and sent it in. And it, Throw in a few British slang words here and there, yeah. and they're like, "Oh yeah, that's legit. Yeah, looks just good. Make your Z's S's, you know." <laughs> Not too, Bangers and mash. Oh yeah. yeah, and he can ed they can edit it too. So mm -hmm. you know they can change whatever they want. That's cool. Okay, so you're in, you're in Columbia. You're making money. Yeah, taking art classes. Making money, taking art classes, and uh, I'm trying to fit my brain into this new spiritual mind that I just acquired while I was with the shaman. Okay, and this 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 effect was so was so powerful. The girl th this uh. Anik, Anik Schwinar, 
I will find you. Broke my heart and went back to Canada. And uh, so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do something really cool. You know, I want to do something, something, I want to build on this new state of mind that I have from, that I gained from the shaman. So I went online and I started looking at like where I can study Buddhism, but not in a gompa, or sorry, that's Tibetan language, not in a temple, but academically is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be like in like a monk. I didn't want to shave my head and wear the robes and not be allowed to, you know. So I went to, uh, I ended up in Thailand. I flew to Thailand from Colombia. And no, I went to Portland actually. I went to Portland, visited my parents for a month. Then I went to Thailand and I found this guy named Jet Lee. <laughs> oh yeah, I know him. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> He's a Reiki master. And he gave me Reiki classes for two months. I think it was almost two months. So I'm a certified Reiki guy. Okay, so explain that because I, ha I have a friend who also does that. Mm. Yeah. It's not real in my opinion. You don't think so? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, so I, I, I trained with him for a while and then he what, – What do you do though? What is, what is the basis? What is the background? What is the foundation? It's, it's, okay, okay. It's based on um, Indian – philosophy and medical terminologies and stuff. So it has Hindu background and uh, basically they're following these chakras that, that are, are, are aligned with the meridian system, which is actually Chinese, I think. But the chakras, the main chakras, there's seven of them. There's one on your head. There's one right here. There's one here, here, and there's the, there. And then, rrr, rrr. Yeah. The only one I can remember is the muladhara, which is the one between your balls and your and your rectum, it's right up in there, and it's uh, the 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 red one. It's the the grounding chakra that's supposed to ground you. It's really important to ground yourself before you do any anything else before you work on any other chakras. And so their goal is to keep the chakras flowing. People use different words, and everybody you know has a different way of explaining it. But um, Reiki practitioners are supposed to open up all those chakras so that they're operating so that they're functioning functioning properly so that they're so that you experience your your spiritual humanity in the proper way so when they're doing it what they're doing is they're just when they place their hands above a certain part of your body those are chakras underneath their hands they're mm -hmm. in, you know, they're trying to open those with energy it's it's all energy right with energy yeah so but I guess you, it, it's you, not fair to say that it's not real. Maybe it's real. I don't know. But I didn't – in my experience, I, I didn't I didn't experience that. I didn't think that in the end, it didn't seem like I was doing anything at all. You're, you're hanging out with Jet Li in Thailand and he's teaching you this and you're like, nah, yeah. fuck this. It's no, no. Thing. I was believing, believing it and into it really with him at the time. And uh, after the course, uh, he asked if I wanted to go heal somebody for reals who has – a cancer? Knee, a knee problem. Cancer. <laughs> like, here you go, bud. I was just trying to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wish I could. Um, so, she, so he sent me to this 60-year-old martial artist's house in Burma, which is another country. It's, it's now called Myanmar, on Song Suu Kyi's country. It borders Thailand. So I got on a plane. I go over to this lady's house. And it's in Yangzong. 
that's what it's called, Yongson. It's the southern. It used to be the capital. It's on. It's close to the water. It's close to the sea, the beach, and uh, not the most comfortable place. Uh, people are really smart there, and uh, they're just really awesome, awesome, awesome people. I'm sorry that they have to live there, but so I start working on this lady, and I start with like a little. Let's let's just go through the. Uh, this is all happening because of ayahuasca. Just keep that in mind. I would have never did this shit if I didn't drink ayahuasca. <laughs> ayahuasca did all of this. So now I'm in Burma, you know, and I'm trying to open these chakras. And, you know, I did everything that he did, which is make them comfortable, play some, uh, you know, some uh, chanting music and, and uh, just you know, and be quiet. Try to, you got to have the environment has to be set up kind of nice. You know, if you have candles or incense, you can do that. So, and I, I, I run through just like a little introductory session, you know, and then I come back and for another one, but this one's the serious one. I was like, this is your day, ma'am. <laughs> After this, if this shit works, your <laughs> knees are going to be good and I'm getting the fuck out of here. And she reported afterwards that there wasn't really any change. So I was like, okay, cool. So you got a bad Yelp review. I did. She was like, hey, that's not cool. She goes, yeah, my knee still hurts. Because you can tell that her knees hurt, actually, because when she's walking up the, up a stairs or something, she has like a thing wrapped around it. She's like, yeah, I need surgery for my knees. And I was like, well, when I first saw her, I was like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> I don't think I can heal this person. Yeah. <laughs> so we ended up, I ended up staying with her at her house for, she's a female 60 year old martial artist from Burma. And she's actually quite famous, actually, there because she's one of the only female hmm. instructors in in the Banda tradition, where they use like swords and stuff. Well, no offense. Why are they sending new guy, white guy from Portland, Oregon, when they could send Jet Li? Why isn't Jet Li doing it? I that's a question for Jet Li. I, I mean, he's probably trying to rake in the dough over there in his studio. You know, he's just he's shooting movies with Jackie Chan, just milking that Google. You know, getting all those foreigners coming in. And, <laughs> Paying them $2,000 for their certificate. If I were that 60-year-old martial artist, I'd be like, no, fucking send him. Well, she could just go to, to him too, but. Uh, okay, so you go yeah. back for the second round. It doesn't work out. She says that you didn't quite heal it. But that's what he does, though. He likes to send people. He's like, he, th he has disciples. So, um, he, yeah, so we, we do several sessions. And we're by three weeks we've done i think 10 sessions or something and i'm and i'm i'm really believing in it i'm not giving up yet and i'm telling her i was like listen we got to do something different i think you're not getting like the elements and i can't remember what the hell i was thinking at the time <laughs> but i figured well if we can go to the beach and i can bury we can swim in the ocean and i can bury you in the sand then maybe, and then I'll do Reiki on you right there at the beach. Then maybe, Sounds I don't like a date. I don't dude. know why. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why that that would change something. But at the time, I was trying to mix. I was mixing shamanism. Actually, that's what happened with Reiki. I was trying to like fuse them together, and so I was like trying to think of like the elements that would contribute to healing and stuff. And um, yeah, so we drove. We went like four hours down to this resort area where the public are allowed to, the military controls everything in that country. So, you know, where they're allowed to be in the beach. So we go there and right away it's really awkward because here's us. I'm walking down the beach with this old lady. We're like 
dressed to go swimming and there's a whole bunch of like Muslim looking dudes like staring at us like, what is he doing with that woman on the beach? <laughs> you know, it's like this white guy from this Westerner. With, it's like, it doesn't make sense to them. So everyone's just like all eyes on us. So I bury her. We swim, we go swim in the ocean and I bury her in the sand. <laughs> People are just like, <laughs> like what the fuck is this going? little girl comes running over and I'm like, what is she doing? And then she just like skids to a stop and pops up this camera and goes, and then takes off running back to her parents. Doesn't even say hello or anything. And I was like, okay, have a nice day. You know, so, uh, and then that didn't work either. So, and the, you know, eventually that didn't heal her, uh, her knees either. So what did you talk about in the car for four hours? She likes to talk about martial arts. That's a long drive, man. And I like to talk about, like, I want, when, when I'm in Burma, Myanmar, or when I was that one time, I really enjoyed talking to the the younger people, like in their twenties, that were in the universities because they're really, really smart. Like their political uh, IQ in that country, you can't tell when you land in the plane. It's like Tijuana, get the fuck out of here. But it's not. It's not like the people are like like super aware of what's going on. You know, you know. Recently, like the the military like took over again and the people just like broke out into a civil war mm -hmm. and stuff. So, and they're smart and they're brave and they're f really cool. So, and, and, and also Myanmar has one of the most incredible places that makes like the Giza plateau in Egypt look like some kid's little toy. Okay. They have, it's called Bagan, B-A-G-A-N, Bagan. And it is a place where over the course of a thousand years, several different Kings and people built pyramid style temples uh to their whatevers and and it's just it's, it's along this river it's just, and there's like a hundred of them it's just crazy and it's, it's like 100 square miles maybe it just takes up this massive part of the center of the country and when you go there there's like it's like empty i i was i, I rented a bicycle and i was riding this bike and I found a, uh, a temple with a giant Buddha, 30 feet tall Buddha in this position, which I can't remember what this is, teaching position, right? And he's sitting like this. His hands are so huge. I was like, I just said, fuck it. I went back to my hostel. I got my backpack and I rode back out there with some food. And I cr climbed up there and I slept in that giant Buddha's hands overnight. And I stayed there actually for a few days for free. And there's nobody there. It's empty. Hmm. you know. And you're just way out there on these dirt roads and there's not a soul they built a, beautiful. a massive Buddha beautiful. out of uh, rocks. Out of rocks, yeah. and nobody's there to appreciate it. It just it's out there. Yeah, they had an earthquake last year too, so a lot of that was damaged. Huh. Bagan, incredible, incredible, and I would have never known about it. And if you ask anybody, like a lot of people, they've never heard of it. People need to hear about this place. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. A part of the appeal was that it being empty. I was going to say emptiness, which is a Buddhist teaching. Like it's, it's like there's just nobody there. There's the there's the one main street, and there's some people there. It's not a lot. There's not like hotels everywhere. It's this unknown place. Like people know, but there's not a lot of tourists coming. At least when I was there, there wasn't. Who knows? Maybe there is. But when I was there, there was, it was empty. Well, and it's just incredible. It seems like the majority Serene. of people who are interested in being tourists are going to places either for like a photo or because it has some sort of like um, cultural significance or it, it just seems like 
that place is not going to be populated with tourists because everybody there is just so minimal. It seems like nobody has anything on purpose mm. because why would you need a bunch of possessions? Why do you need a car? Why do you need a bike? Why do you need a thousand shirts in your closet? It seems like everybody's just really simple. Is that true? Yeah, of course. Most countries are like that. Um, but I mean, some of them are like that because they're poor. It seems like the, like Tibet. And poor according to our standards, our definition of poverty. Yeah. You know, because yes, they're simple. Where, where my home is now, the people there are very simple. They have a phone and like a couple different pairs of clothes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but they own their land. The, yeah. the bank doesn't own it. They own their house. They built it themselves. The bank doesn't own it. They don't have to pay bills for that shit. The water comes out of the mountain for free. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, po poverty, poverty, see, in the big cities, uh, people, they, they, even in Burma, you can see, like, these kids are coming into the cities, you know, and they, they're trying to, they want to have a whole bunch of stuff, you know? They want to have a whole, an excessive amount of shit. You know, it's just a human thing, I think. I mean... I don't know. Poverty, I guess. Uh, you know what? What is what is poverty? What is the the is 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 there like a one thousand dollars a year? Is that how they define it? And... I mean, I don't know how they define it, but it it has to fluctuate based on which country you live in. Because poverty in America is less than twenty thousand dollars. If you had twenty thousand okay. dollars in uh, fucking Nigeria, yeah. you would be okay. Oh, you, great. Yeah. Great. Cause yeah, Nigeria, they might be lucky to make a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it just depends on where you're at, but I think, I guess you would define it as whether or not you can have a house or like shelter, mm -hmm. enough food and clothing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you can do those things, then you're probably okay. I mean, it mm. seems like there's so many people in the world that they don't even have clean water. They don't have a toilet. They don't have food. Mm -hmm. They maybe wear the same shoes for five years or something, you know? Like, there's different levels. No toilet, yeah. There's a lot of, I guess there are a lot of places like that in Africa, I hear. I haven't been to Africa, but uh, I have been to places in India like that. Yeah. Yeah, where they, like, designate, like, this area will poop in. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I've walked through that on accident before. I'm like, why is there shit everywhere? <laughs> the guy's like, oh, that's where everybody shits. It's like, oh, okay. So, oh, cool. <laughs> it's funny because they, they the same location, they gave like $100 million to the refugees from Burma. And there's no toilets there for the mm -hmm. for the city, for the people that are from there. But their mm -hmm. taxes went to these other people. That's, that's Southern India. That was Puri, uh, P-U-R-I, Puri, Puri is what it's called. And... Ugh, I, I got a hotel, I got my swimsuit on, I go running out to the beach, I go swimming, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, so this is the beach in India, and I look up and this guy's shitting, I'm like, huh? And he's timing it, he's timing it just right, so when the water comes up, it'll it'll grab his poop and his poop just goes down into the ocean. Right? Where you're swimming. Right, and so I'm like, wait a minute, let's... The air smells like shit too. So I come up out of the beach and I, I go for a little beach walk. And for that whole half a mile that I walked, it was just one guy after another just taking shits. 
into the beach that I just went swimming into. And so I, the guy at the hotel goes, that's where everybody shits. <laughs> it's like, great. You don't say. You should put that in the ad, you know. <laughs> I, I found you on Google. <laughs> You're getting a review for sure for this one. <laughs> uh, wow. He said enjoy the beach too. Wow. He said, he said that before I, went, before I went swimming. He said enjoy the Maybe beach. Maybe he meant take a shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I hate to do it right here, but I feel like you're going to have to come back. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Okay. So you're going to go? I'm going to come back in a whole different state of mind. Dude, so also... I'm, I'm going to go back to the Amazon tomorrow after not having been there for 10 years. And I'm going to do ayahuasca again. Yeah. And you said you'll come back in a month. I, I don't will. know if you're going to come back in a month. Well, I hope so because I bought a plane ticket. I bought... I bought... Oh, you bought a round trip? With a credit card, my okay. first, okay. My, my very first first class trip, round trip, first class all the way down there. It's my first time, so I'm 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 looking forward to the, to the flight back. Okay, we'll come back in yeah. a month then, and we'll keep going because yeah. I think we got another hour and forty seven minutes okay. at least. Cool, cool. Yeah. All right.